You gotta fight hard for these things sometimes. You gotta do small steps and you gotta do big steps. And you have to be prepared to, um, to uh, do things that are uncomfortable. Uncomfortable for you and uncomfortable for the organization. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters Podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today's guest is Ian Hu, an estates litigator at Carol Hade Chown LLP. Ian has spoken at more than 200 events across North America. He's involved with the ABA in multiple capacities, and he's the former vice president of the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. Ian, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, it's great to be here. Yeah, glad to, glad to have you on the show. Um, Ian, before we get into a discussion of legal technology, I would love your perspective on what's going on with the world right now. There's obviously so much uh, going on as it relates to uh, race, especially with COVID-19 as a backdrop. You're someone who's very passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your comments on, on how you think about those things against the, the, the backdrop of the world events that have occurred over the last few weeks and last few months. Yeah, without question, I, I stand with the Black Lives Matter movement. Good for them. You know, it's about time. Yep. And it's something that's needed uh, here in Canada as well. Uh, no question. Um, it's painful to think about it and to watch it um, and to be an other. Um, and it's wonderful, you know. I'm, I'm so happy that these guys are out there uh, fighting for, for them and fighting for us. Yeah. Uh, whatever headway they make um, is going to come and, and help society as a whole and help all of us who, who are other um, here in Canada and, and really the world. And Ian, I, you, you made a comment about, the, about Canada and I, I should point out that we're, we're both, I'm from Vancouver and you're uh, in Toronto right now, I believe. Uh, and one of the comments I've heard over the last few weeks is Canadians commenting about the situation in the U.S. as if this is a U.S. specific problem. And I find myself reacting pretty viscerally to that because we've got a long-standing history of systemic racism in, in Canada and we, we have our own populations, including our indigenous populations that have had uh, the same kind of oppression that, that the that black people have felt in the U.S. Yeah. And I feel, can, can you comment on that for, for, uh, for a second, maybe both in the context of what you see, you know, in Canada vis-a-vis -vis what's happening in the, the U.S. and what commonalities might exist and what, what differences might exist. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we don't have the, the intense history of slavery that, that the U.S. has. Um, but but, but we, we have other forms, right? We have the, the indigenous um, community. We have... Um, just speaking for myself, um, the and and the Asians. We had the Chinese who, um, you know, didn't have a lot of rights. Were were brought over here to to build trains, to build yeah. train tracks, and that's it. Yeah. And um, we were. Uh, it took a long time to get over all of those, uh, just to get to a point where you have economic possibility and where you have the ability to vote. 
to buy houses, so on and so forth. Um, and those, 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 it could be argued that, that while those um, opportunities are available for everyone, um, the reality is there is an economic inequality between um, the others and, and, and the dominant culture here. And so it is difficult to, to make headway. It's difficult to uh, progress and to live the Canadian life that everyone dreams about um, if you are an other. It's a, it's a, it's a hard step to make. Uh, and in the legal profession in particular, Ian, are you involved in any efforts in, in trying to change legal from a diversity and inclusion perspective? This is certainly a, a profession that is, is, is not great when it comes to the, the raw stats around diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit more about that and, and any ways you're involved in trying to drive change there? Yeah, well, I, I've been uh, with the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers for a long time. And I served in some leadership positions there. And, and uh, I've been involved with the Roundtable of Diversity Associations here in Ontario, which is called RODA. Um, I've given lots of presentations on EDI to lawyers. But I'm gonna say, um, it's the little things. Every small little thing that you do um, can result in some real change. So when I was in law firms, at, at law firms and, and, and some big companies and some smaller corporations and big corporations, um, you know, I get a phone call from a diverse lawyer who says, I want, you know, I put in an application. And then I ask, uh, you know, the, my superiors, oh, have you seen the, this person's application? And they say, oh, yeah, this person who is a diverse, potential diverse hire um, was number three. And so we're going to um, interview the first two. Didn't make the cut. But because I put in a word for this person, they make the cut. And lo and behold, they get hired, right? It's those little things that, that you see that you, you have to put, put a word in when the opportunity arises. When Osgood Hall, um, there, was, there was a very recent, uh, I think it was last year, um, Osgood Hall, which is the Court of Appeal here in Ontario, um, has huge... Uh, um, change rooms for male barristers and a much smaller one for female barristers. And on Twitter, or what we call law Twitter, which is just a bunch of lawyers tweeting, <laughs> tweeting around. Um, and here in Ontario, the female lawyers were tweeting out like, what's going on? We've heard there's a huge male barristers um, lounge. What does it look like? So I go down there and I take photos and <laughs> uh, a picture says a thousand words, right? And these photos make it clear that it's uh, very, very nice, quite lavish. You've got uh, huge windows, you've got couches. It's a, it's, um, it's a high class uh, men's club changing room. Yeah. And, uh, and it was because of that, um, that storm that came, that, that, uh, that came about that, um, that Osgood Hall decided, yeah, we're gonna have co-ed change rooms, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that when, I, when I'm taking pictures and I walk over there, right? I don't know when I go and talk to my superiors about a diverse hire that they're going to hire this person. I don't know that any of these little things are going to create change, but sometimes they do. So when the opportunity arises, take it.
you got to fight hard for these things sometimes. You got to do small steps and you got to do big steps. And you have to be prepared to, um, to uh, do things that are uncomfortable, uncomfortable for you and uncomfortable for the organization. Uh, so I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but th those are some of the things I, I, I've taken a lot of pride in. When you, you, you talked about some of the ways individuals can take action, even if it puts them in an uncomfortable place, as you pointed out, sometimes those small actions can actually drive really, really huge change. When we're, we're thinking about this system as a whole, when we're thinking about law firms and legal organizations and, and law schools, what can those institutions be doing differently to create a more equi equitable and inclusive environment? Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a quick answer for this. Um, I have about three or four points. And, and I'm going to start with the first of all, get rid of the diverse potluck lunch. That is not diversity. It is not right. diversity to sit around and eat food from all the different cultures. Okay. You want real change. So, and, and, and you mean this as, as some window dressing on, look, yes. we're, we're inclusive, we're doing look at us. celebrating we a party cultures. Eating food from diverse cultures. Check off the box. Yes. We're, we're diverse. Yeah. No, you want real change, right? You look at your list of, of lawyers, you look at your list of um, uh, um, staff, and you see what the diversity is there. And if they're not there, then if you're a law firm or a legal organization or a big company with a huge in-house department, hire diverse lawyers, number one. Number two, uh, you have a preferred list. If you're an in-house in group and you hire um, out, you, you retain counsel, um, you have a list of preferred counsel. Look at that list and tell me that that's diverse. You know, So that preferred list has to be diverse. Because you, you provide, it's not just about who you hire, it's about who you use. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, three, promotions. You got to promote diverse lawyers. Look at who are your managers, who are your supervisors, who are the directors. They have to be diverse. So promote your diverse lawyers. And finally, you got to put diverse lawyers on, on boards. You got to put them on the executive, right? How many companies and, and law firms do we look out there? And it's, it's 10% or less, you know, um, not acceptable. And usually it's not even 10%, right? Yeah. And on a board. No, that 10% 10, 10 is uh, doing a, well, unfortunately, for some, yeah. some firms. Yeah, that's one on a board of 10, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are the, the things you have to do. Once you get doing that, then we can talk about everything else. But these are the substantive changes that have to be made. So may maybe on point number one, Ian, I'm curious if you have any, any recommended systems for improving diversity at a hiring level. There's a lot of strategies that, that organizations talk about, everything from thinking about quotas, hiring on the, either on the hiring side, or there's been some very interesting research around how you can cha change the the makeup of the hiring pipeline and depending on the ratios of, of folks you've got in the hiring pipeline, it actually influences what your hiring ratios end up being in a very nonlinear way. 
Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious what perspectives or recommendations you might have around it, actually setting yourself up for making uh, more diverse hires in a more successful way. Yeah. Um, there, there's a couple, I have a couple of thoughts on this. Uh, really only two points I want to say. One, um, quotas are great. I have no problems with quotas. Put those quotas in. There's no, there's nothing to, nothing that says when you have a quota that it's permanent. You got to achieve change first. And having achieved change, get rid of your quotas. Do what you want. But first recognize that you're, you're, you're way below the bar. And you got to meet, meet with the bar first. You got to go up yeah. to that standard first. Um, and I think most law firms and legal organizations are way below the bar. And not, not only that, if you, if you get to that bar, I think there's uh, also a lot of research that shows that it's easy to maintain or even yes. grow that bar organically once you get to that point. Exactly. And that's my second point, which is... Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to take that from you, by the no, way. No, that was great, Jack. That's exactly right. I mean, this is about, uh, about the culture. This is about every single staff there who says, oh, you have a job opening? My friend who's diverse who is looking for this kind of job, I'm gonna give that person a call. I'm gonna talk exactly. to that person and say, this is the place you wanna work at, right? Because I can tell you there are phone calls that go the opposite way, where people call, where diverse uh, lawyers are looking at, at law firms and, or legal or organizations and they call someone they know and the person, works, organize, person in the organization says, don't join, there's no diversity here. Or yeah. join, but hey, eyes wide open here. Yeah, I want you to know what you're getting into, right? That's the culture. And, and, and not everyone sees that, right? Um, and so you want to make change. You got to make culture change, which comes from the top and which, which is an everyday, every person thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Ian. And let's make a dramatic shift of gears now. We're, we're also going to talk about legal technology and, uh, you describe yourself as a legal innovation evangelist. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to just hear what that means in, in, in your eyes. What, what does a legal technology evangelist look like? And what is I a legal? Stole, I just stole the evangelist word because <laughs> that's what techies like to use, right? Um, they, they do. Yeah. There's, there's developer evangelists. There's yeah. uh, you're, you're spreading a message. You're spreading a message. And, and I think what it means is, is you're a true believer. Uh, in my case, I believe that legal technology and modern legal practice, legal innovations will change the face of law for the better. You have to believe that in order to be an evangelist, right? I believe that if legal tech does, is allowed to do what it can do and, and fills that space, there will be a lot of people who have access to justice, you know, who can get the, their, their disputes resolved who can get their wills written, who, who, can, who can figure everything out and with an app and swipe left or swipe right, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the power that, that, that is in legal tech. That's the power that's in legal innovation. It, it can help the people. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that's what I believe. Uh, well, you know me, Ian, I'll say a big amen to that. And I'm curious what your what has your personal journey been in terms of maybe recognizing the power of legal technology and, and what, what saw you converted uh, into a, a legal technology fan and, and eventually evangelist? Yeah, well, I, I've always been a tech guy. Um, 
my, my dad was an engineer. I started as an engineer. My two brothers are engineers. Um, one, one has spent a lot of time at, at places like Google and, and Facebook and the other at places like Call of Duty and, and Activision and Amazon okay. Go. So that's that's you've got, my. Family. You've got a very technical family. Yeah, and and I, I'm the I'm the uh, I'm the third child. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I can do whatever I want, I guess. Uh, so you know, I've been I've been uh, I've been hitting bulletin board systems and, at 2400 bald since I was 12 years old. You know. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've, I've long you know been a fan of, of legal of tech. Um, and so when I enter the legal space, it's obvious for anyone. And, and now having represented both plaintiff and defendants on both sides, it's obvious. There are huge disadvantages um, for those who, ha who don't have knowledge, for those who don't have power, for those who don't have money. And, and I think somewhere there, technology can, can flatten that. Technology can give advantages to those who don't have the advantages. Technology can can provide legal services for those that don't have it. Um, you know, just, I just think about like will writing, you know, um, which is ripe for uh, that. I believe any app can probably do for ninety five percent of wills. Uh, you know what, what a lot of wills lawyers do? You get the facts. You, you find out, you know, a relevant fact, uh, something that's different from the usual. Someone wants to uh, implement a trust. You go into your will's book. You find the section that talks about the trust and you copy and you paste that right. section in. Tell me an app can't do that, right? <laughs> um, let alone solving disputes. Already proven. eBay does it. Already proven now with Shannon Salter out, out there in BC, Jack. In the, in the tribunal. I'm actually speaking to her later this afternoon. Okay, there you go. There you go. Have her say, please say hi for me. I will. Yeah. So that's, that's you know, all of those are, are amazing things that, that the tech, tech can do. And, so and you, 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 you point out correctly, I think, Ian, that legal of, of all professions maybe being as, as rule-based and precedent-driven as uh, more than any other is ripe for the kinds of transformation, the kind of opportunities that yeah. technology pr presents. And, and yet we see a profession that many regard uh, correctly or incorrectly as technology laggards or resistant to, to change. Can you speak about what your perspective on, on that is and whether lawyers are truly slow to adopt technology and if so, why? Lawyers are, are unquestionably slow to adopt the technology. Um, what's the widest use of technology for lawyers? Well, it's what you do, Jack, practice management software. That's right. their primary take on technology. Do they know what technology can do other than practice management software? Because it can do a lot, right? Um, and so, practice management software is kind of table stakes, right? Yeah. Like that's that's yeah. like saying an accountant uses an accounting system to run their, their books. Yeah. How about, how about um, you know, software um, like what uh, Ben Alari has at Blue Jay? It can tell mm -hmm. you whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor or tell you whether something fits under a legal concept, right? Or of course, yeah, Ross we, AI and so on, right? We can throw Ross AI, we had uh, Noah Weisberg uh, from yeah. Kira on the show earlier. 
Yeah. And you got, and, and, and all of these, these, these opportunities are available. So, but forget lawyers, the fancy lawyers. stuff too, by the way, forget AI and all the fancy stuff. You, you mentioned document automation, stuff that's been around for yeah. two yeah. or three decades. Yeah. It has so much opportunity for impact. Yeah. I don't know what it is or why it is. Right. But lawyers are stuck on, on precedent. Um, and, and there's one more thing that, that, that lawyers really, really value, which I don't think the public values as much accuracy. Lawyers want to be right. Lawyers want to want to get things so that it's just so they want to get that law right. They want to get it perfect. They want to get all that case law and understand everything and assess that risk. I don't know if people want that. I think the, I think the public values access more than accuracy. It's more important that you can resolve that dispute for 10 bucks with a swipe or, or whatever than it is to, to figure out that, oh, I'm going to pay $12,000 instead of $11,000 on this dispute, right? Right. They want access. The public needs to be able to, to get that, whereas lawyers are very, very hung, hung up on trying to do the best possible job. Yeah, I think it's, I've seen a lot of that myself, Ian, and I think part of it is is maybe not even wanting to be accurate, but maybe not having a good instinct around where good enough is good enough. You know, where where's that line and, and yeah. kind of the law of diminishing returns is at work with legal work where exactly. your will is probably good enough. Uh, like you said, with that, that templated kind of automation system for 99% of, of wills in the way that most wills will get executed is probably good for 99% of those cases. So unless you've got some super high net worth individual with an ultra high stakes will, maybe you should optimize to making it accessible to your point over making it perfect and, and, and figuring out where is that, that line of, of good enough for the, the masses. And then we can think about how do we increase access with that kind of a mindset. Yeah, we're, you know, I, I articled at a Bay Street firm and, and, and you often hear, I want you to cover, uncover every rock. Right. Is, That's a very common saying. Yeah. Is that our standard? You know, um, I don't know if the public needs that. Yeah. So, Ian, if we, if we look at the, you know, less the, the causal side of why the profession is slow to adopt new technologies, if we, if we kind of look at the, the other side of the coin, and there's a lot of great innovation happening in legal, what are some of the biggest factors driving innovation in legal? And, and what are you excited about in regards to the innovation that's happening today? Technology is, is much, much easier to use. And coding is easier than it used to be. So the more, the more uh, uh, groups of coding you have, the more, the more coding has, has you know, used to have to go into basic and code every single procedure. You don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. You can just buy a package and do what you want. Right. You can create a chatbot by, by, by using a, another app. You know, it's, it's all out there. So the yeah, this whole emergence of these, these low code or no code tools that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. And it goes right into the access versus accuracy. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a very powerful program to hit the right needs. I don't think you need a very powerful program to write wills, for example, um, to write 99% of wills. Um, so you just need good enough. 
and the technology is at that point where you don't have to be a genius to do good enough. You can probably do okay. And, and in fact, if you know how to design, if you have thoughts about design, you don't need to do the coding. You can hire coders to do that work. So technology is easier to use and easier to code. Uh, the second thing is demand. There's a big demand for it now. People are, it, it all comes hand in hand, right? They understand now that, that this is possible. eBay has done it. This is possible. Shannon Salter is doing it. This is possible. And once you realize, you know, there's Uber out, out, in, out in, uh, in, in California, why isn't there Uber in Toronto? Well, there will be. The demand is there now, right? People are understanding the demand is there now. And slowly, slowly understanding that good enough is good enough. Um, and, and what do you think at a macro level, Ian, we might see in terms of maybe forcing the firms that have been able to get away without being very innovative to, to finally start innovating on in the way that they deliver legal services? That's a tough question, you know? Um, a lot of, some of these firms, um, um, their clients are people or, or entities that require sophisticated legal services. So I often hear from, from, from such lawyers, um, I'm not gonna lose my business, right? There, people are always gonna need high-end services that technology cannot uh, cater to. And that, that might be true for the next two, five, 10 years. But there will be a point when the technology gets good enough and it will be able to tell you with a high degree of accuracy whether, uh, whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor. And, and, and it, to such a, and you know, it's easy to think the pie in the sky, um, uh, uh, where is this all gonna go is easy to picture. Just imagine what's there now and, and times a thousand for accuracy. And then, you, and then you get to the point where it's like, well, why do I need to go to a lawyer when my app will tell me what the percent chance is of something? And that's the risk, you know, 67% risk. Well, I'm going to settle this at 67% risk. It's proven. It's, and, 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 the, and if you've got big data in there, your uh, 10,000 cases is far more reliable than that one law firm's history of 1,000 cases. Right. So. We're, we're seeing some very interesting early, early perspectives on what that could look like with the work that Joshua Browder is doing at Do Not Pay. We, we had Joshua yeah. on the show uh, a few weeks ago, but, but again, if you, you want to automatically dispute your uh, refusal for unemployment benefits. Yeah. You can automate that entire process. You want to fight with the airlines about the, the, the fact they won't refund your your airline ticket due to COVID-19, a completely automated process for that. You, you see where some of these forms of automation are, are, are going and where some of the, the business and some of the demand for these services may go if, if lawyers don't figure out a way of addressing this need more efficiently and effectively. Yeah, the big corporation is gonna ask itself, we can hire lawyers or we can provide services to our, our customers and have them sign that uh, have them agree, as, as they always have to, that all disputes will be figured out through my app. And boom, there goes, your, there goes everything your law firm did for, for, uh, for the big client. Right? So I'm, I'm curious, Ian, when, when you are out evangelizing for legal technology and maybe you find you know, a set of individuals or, or maybe an entire firm that you just 
can't convert to the uh, the new religion around technology. What are some of the factors that form barriers to legal technology adoption or maybe to, to innovation in general? And um, what concerns you about those barriers? It's a, well, Without question, the reason one of the reasons why the change doesn't happen is because none of the none of the lawyers in charge were were educated or, or trained in legal technology. Mm -hmm. You can't get someone to make a huge change uh, when they don't understand it and they don't believe in it. Maybe it takes a generation, which is what is what is happening um, right now with um, you know things like the Ryerson Legal Innovation Zone, where you have universities and law schools, and, and, and that's just in Canada. Also in the States, they've, they've got them popping up in, all, in a bunch of law schools doing future of law where they're training their lawyers. And so when those lawyers one day get in charge, become in charge, which could, could be in 10, 20 years, then maybe that's when we start seeing a difference because, because then the people that, that I'm talking to or that whoever is gonna be me <laughs> 20 years from now, um, they're speaking to a rapt audience. Right. We're, we're, we're trying to pry open a jar that's been closed uh, forever. So, so it, it, do you really think it's waiting for that generational change to happen before we'll start to see the, the scales tip? I'm a cynical lawyer. <laughs> Deep down, I think that's what I believe, but I hope for better, you know? Um, it, but, and there are other barriers too, though. Um, and, and, Maybe the biggest is the monopoly that, that lawyers have in virtually every jurisdiction in the world, which, which makes it so that only lawyers can give legal advice. So you cannot have an app that writes a will because that's effectively giving legal advice, which is just ridiculous. One day, someone's gonna create an app like Uber, you know, um, that's on the border, you know, can you, you know, you, you couldn't have just like taxis were regulated. You're going to have an app that's so effective, so cheap, so easy to use and so widely used that is unstoppable. And then it's too late. It's too late. You've been taken over. So, so why not create a set of rules that allow for apps to do what they can do. Why not create, break down that monopoly and open a space for legal apps that says you can do provide these services. Um, so no one wants to step in that right now. Too risky. Yeah, it's too bad. It, seem, it seems just last week we learned of Washington State rolling back their triple LT program. And it, it feels like the small steps we, we make in that direction seem to be greeted by two, step, two steps backward at some point. Well, Self-interest is a, is a hard thing to fight when you got a monopoly. That's, that's very true. Now, I, I'm interested on your perspective. I, I'm at least of the mindset that when we really embrace legal technology, we maximize our productivity as lawyers. We, we maybe even invite non-lawyers to help support uh, the work that needs to be done. We, we layer in technologies and apps to help address the legal need that's, that's out there. And the legal need is substantial. We yeah. have the World Justice Project data telling us that 77% of legal issues that consumers experience when 
unaddressed by a lawyer. So yeah. there, there's a, you know, what I described as the, 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 the tip of the iceberg that is the 23% of legal needs that are being met by lawyers today and a vast market to be unlocked if we can properly leverage, I think, technologies and efficiency um, and automation and, and maybe non-lawyers to tap into that legal demand. But the, the story can be, we can make the pie bigger and we can make yes. the pie bigger for, for everyone and we can have individual lawyers thriving and being more successful than they ever were if we can get a bit more innovative. And yet the many legal professionals and especially, you know, the regulators seem to have a bit more of a fixed mindset that this is a zero, a zero sum game. And if we cede territory to apps or we cede territory to uh, non-lawyers, we're endangering our livelihoods, essentially. Can, can you speak to your perspective on that? Yeah, I would love to see. I agree with you. I agree with you, Jack. I, I would love to see a model rules I'd love to see a model structure or framework where, where it can be shown that legal apps um, can coexist with legal services um, and, and be helpful for, for everybody. Be good for the greater good, be good for the, for the legal market. And, and, it's, and really, when you think about it, how could it not be? Because it's such a huge percentage of unserved people and whatever right. technology you come up with, it's not going to be perfect right now. It will require a lawyer to, to make sense of it and to use it, right? Um, there are great apps right now, and they do require lawyers. So um, we're so early in the stage that the fear of, of being taken over is, is misplaced. So Ian, let's, let's talk a little bit about the... COVID-19 crisis and, and the influence that is having on legal technology adoption. Uh, just this week, Clio will be publishing our second COVID-19 uh, briefing on, on almost a state of the industry perspective on, on some of the impacts COVID-19 has had on the profession and some of the ways it's driving technology adoption. And I, I think the silver lining some of us are seeing in this, this crisis is that it does seem to be accelerating change and accelerating the adoption of at least some tools and technologies among lawyers and, and law firms. Can, can you speak to what you've seen on the, on the ground and maybe what some of your hopes for ongoing impact might be? Yeah. Um, the thing that makes me happiest is the impatience uh, from judges for lawyers that uh, refuse to do uh, video discoveries, remote discoveries, remote mediations, and so on. There are some wonderful judgments out there. Uh, Justice Myers, shout out to you. <laughs> uh, with phrases like, it's 2020. You know? <laughs> it's time, um, time to wake up. It's time to, time to get with it. And that impatience is, is, is shared by lawyers. And, 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 and that impatience is what you need to get lasting change. Uh, you know, I work, I work a, a, a substantial amount in insurance. We're seeing uh, insurance companies have had all their lawyers work from home, right? Uh, we're seeing any lawyer that's capable of doing it, working from home. And we're seeing lawyers that, have, are, uh, that are, were prepared and are living in the Cayman Islands while they're, while they're practicing uh, in, in Canada, you know? Right. And, and reaping the benefits. So you're, you're, it's not just avoidance of pain. It's, 
it's going to going to the pleasure and and you're gonna see uh, I hope um, that all of this um, can be uh, can be achieved uh, the frustration uh, of not be, of not being able to practice the way we want to because the courts are so uh, slow moving right now, uh, along with the pleasure. So you've got both going right now, the carrot and the stick, and you got to hope that that's going to last. Agree. Uh, so Ian, before we wrap up, I want to touch uh, on the fact that you've started a very popular Facebook group about personal finance for lawyers. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of financial health uh, and, and how important it's been for you and, and a bit yeah. more about this group and what the discussion topics are? Yeah, sure. This is near and dear to my heart because it made a huge difference in my life, right? Um, it's, uh, it's called the Canadian Lawyers Personal Finance uh, Group on Facebook. So you just go to Facebook and you do a search and, and you can join it. We have 700 lawyers now. Basically, a lawyer, uh, one or two members join every single day. Um, and here, here's, here's my story, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I started off um, at law firms that, that were quite successful. And you walk in and, and virtually every car in the parking lot is a BMW. Everyone has their super nice suits. Everyone goes out on huge vacations um, and, and nights out and so on and nice clothes, um, all the experiences and all the things. Uh, but you realize um, uh, there's a great book, uh, Millionaire Next Door, which says lawyers are among the worst savers relative to income, right? We, we want to spend and we want to look the part. And, and I want to say, um, you don't have to. You can be an amazing lawyer and not do any of that. Um, and in fact, if you value freedom, the freedom to join any law firm you want, the freedom to write uh, blog posts and voice your opinion, regardless of consequence, the freedom to, to say what you want and do what you want and take whatever risk you want to take. Well, if you are on the road to um, financial independence or you feel secure in your, your ability to manage your finances, you have that freedom. If you have a bad day at work and you want to say, F this, I'm out of here, you can do it, right? Um, it was... Uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Binney, I heard him speak. He said, look, the great thing about being a lawyer is you can go out and start your own law firm at any time, right? It's true, but you're taking risks when you do that. But if you have that financial cushion sitting behind you, um, you have the power to do whatever you want. And, and you know, we, we have a group that's sort of trying to get there. And you, you mentioned this is, it, it sounded like a Canadian specific group, but this actually sounds like topics that would be relevant for a lawyer anywhere. And I'm, I'm sure, can, can you speak maybe a little bit about the tactics and are, are these concepts that would apply equally well to a, a lawyer that might be listening outside of Canada? And if they want in, can they uh, get in on this Facebook group if they happen to be non-Canadian? Okay, so this Facebook group is only for Canadians. Um, but if you are outside of Canada, and even if you're inside of Canada, and you want to start your journey, right, um, you can download a 
something it's like 15 pages, a 15 page PDF by Bernstein. It's called If You Can. Download this document, begin reading and get yourself started. That's a, 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 great, uh, a great suggestion. Thank you, Ian. And lastly, you're very active on social media. Uh, you're a regular columnist, columnist for Canada's largest legal blog. Uh, what are some of your tips for audience members who are looking to grow their social media presence or their personal brand? That's something you've done very successfully and uh, would love to hear more about your, your journey and, and maybe some of the successes you've seen as a result of that investment. Yeah, you, you got to start. Um, you got to just start. So that's my number one tip here. Every entrepreneur knows. Anyone that starts anything knows. Take that first step. <laughs> let, your, let yourself make a fool of yourself. And if, and if you have no followers for the first six months or a year or two years, so be it. At least you're doing it. And as you do it, as you do anything in life, you will get better and better and better at it. And you will improve, you know, because it's, it's as long as you're thoughtful about it, right? Um, it helps to have a, an identity in a brand to know what you are or what, 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 uh, what kind of personality you want to deliver out there, right? Uh, and for me... Um, I've grown into uh, being comfortable with being myself on social media. Um, but you don't have to do that, right? You can focus on, on delivering a certain kind of brand. There's, there's lawyers out there that, that have a very strong equity, diversity, and inclusion slant who are very successful. There's lawyers out there who push their practices in, mm -hmm. very well. And those are, they're successful. There's all kinds of ways to skin this cat and you have no idea where you belong and, 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 and what kind of way works until you do it. So you got to do it and, 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 and let, let, let the ocean take, take you wherever, wherever the currents go. And, and maybe one parting question just on that note, Ian, you, you talked about the fact you're able to show a little bit more of your personality and, and something I see as a recurring theme in, in many conversations with, lawyer, with lawyers is uh, a propensity for, for maybe trying to dilute down their personality in, in especially outward facing and, and yes. more permanent social media channels like Twitter. Um, and yet on the flip side, I talked to many clients that actually gravitate toward lawyers that are demonstrating a bit more in the way of personality that they might feel like they resonate with more strongly for one reason or another. Can, can you speak about that at a high level and maybe any personal experiences you've had on that yeah. front? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've certainly gotten some referrals, um, uh, you know, interviews, opportunities, um, opportunities to work with some cool legal apps, legal tech apps, uh, through, my, through the fact that I have a social media presence, no question. Um, and, you know, it, it's about um, um, putting, putting forth um, a personality that, that, that speaks uh, to you being a human being, to you having faults, to you not being a slick, you know, ultra professional, ultra curated type thing. Um, it goes back to when you try and sell something on eBay, you know, if you're trying to sell something on eBay, yeah, you can make it look like it's a, it's a corporate store that you're selling, or you can just say, 
this is a, this is my bike that I've used for 15 years, and it's got a couple of problems here and here, but you know I think it runs well. I guarantee you, you're going to get a lot of a lot of bids there because they yeah. know it's a no, another normal human being. Uh, clients and 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 people want to work with normal human beings, and that means being vulnerable. That means having opinions. <laughs> That means being likable and not likable. And, 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 and that's okay. That's okay. Well, it's a, a, a great note to, to end on. Uh, and I, I think the idea that humans are looking to connect with other humans is, is more relevant in these times than, than ever. So uh, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Really enjoyed our conversation that was admittedly wide ranging, but really enjoyable and uh, stay healthy out there. Thank you very much, Jack. It's, it was amazing. And you, what you do at Clio is, is incredible. Keep it up. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. 